Marketing Week Meets, sponsored by Salesforce's intelligent one-to-one customer journeys. Helping you achieve higher revenue, happier customers, and lower costs. Hello and welcome to Marketing Week Meets, a monthly podcast in which we speak to a marketing luminary about their life, career and thoughts on the marketing universe. Our criteria for interview subjects is this, people who have made a mark in marketing and of course have an opinion or two. Our guest today ticks both of those boxes. Syl Sala is one of the UK's highest profile and respected marketers. Beginning her career at Gillette in 1984, she left after six years to join Holston Burns Group, eventually becoming managing director. She spent almost three years at Allied de Mec before joining Guinness, Johnny Walker and Gordon's owner Diageo in 1999, rising through the ranks to become Global Chief Marketing and Innovation Officer in 2013. Notably, in a world which often sees marketers bemoaning their lack of influence, she's also on the company's executive board. Related, she has also applied her experience as a non-exec director at Domino's, and she is also looking to embolden as president of the Marketing Society, where she is devoted to an agenda aimed at making marketers better leaders in their businesses. Hello, Syl, and welcome. Hi, Russell. As I've just mentioned, you subscribe to the Marketing Society objective of enabling bolder leadership. What is your own personal approach to leadership? How would I sum it up? I guess you get asked the question three words. I'd say collaborative, results-driven, and supportive. Collaborative in terms of, I believe that you only get things done, particularly at, at a CMO level, through other people. And focus on the team and how they work together pays all kinds of dividends. It is absolutely a multiplier effect. Results-driven, you know, I get described in equal measure as results-driven and people-oriented. Now, the truth underneath that is, for me, it is all about people. But if you don't put down the results, you can't create an environment where people flourish. And that's really what I aspire to do. Results are oil in the engine of a company, and you've got to keep that going and keep the company growing. And supportive, again, I think I've been described in pretty frequently as intensely demanding and intensely supportive. And those things go hand in hand. Yes, I believe in stretching people. I believe in encouraging them to achieve things they never thought possible. But the way I do that is being intensely supportive of them and what they're trying to do. So that means that nobody has to worry about, do I believe in them? If I didn't believe in them in terms of my direct reports, particularly, they wouldn't be on the team. Let's take you back. You graduated summa cum laude from the University of New Hampshire and have an MBA from Harvard Business School. I assume you weren't short of an option or two career-wise, so why marketing? It is kind of a surprising choice. When I was at Harvard, I could be described as the person who didn't fit. And there's a famous scene in the movie about the law school that says, look to your left, look to your right, one of you isn't going to be here. And I was sure that was going to be me because I was the state school grad. I had never worked in business and I was amongst lots of consultants and investment bankers. So I felt pretty challenged. I knew that there was a pretty big gap in my resume, which was there was no evidence that I could do numbers. I majored in psychology and communications, undergrad, and I wanted to fill that gap. So I worked for BCG over the summer. Everyone does a a summer placement. 
And I was fortunate enough, they offered me a full-time job when I graduated. And I remember so distinctly comparing my Gillette offer to my BCG offer and the circumstances under which I'd be doing that job. So at BCG, you'd be talking to the C-suite, influencing bold strategies, probably flying around in jets to glamorous places. And at Gillette, I knew that I would have to do a sales training, which I was kind of dreading. So I pictured myself stacking shelves. So I had those two images and my BCG offer was exactly two times my Gillette offer. But I took the marketing job because I thought I'd be a a good consultant, but I thought I had a chance at being a great marketer. And I really believe people should go with their strengths and where they think that they can be truly outstanding. That's a very inspiring story for anybody uh, in the early part of their career listening. But it also, there might be others perhaps who thinks, what, (laughs) more salary, (laughs) more decision-making, more authority early on. So... Did you feel like you were taking a risk or did you just feel right? You know, I did question it and I tried to justify, you try to tumble the numbers. So consultants are famous for working really hard. And I actually did the math that said, well, if I have to work, you know, this much as a consultant versus in marketing, I will make about the same. And then in marketing, I worked about as hard as I would have had to as a consultant. So that math went out the door. At the end of the day, you do what you love, you go with your gut, and I think it usually pays off. When you were considering career options, did you have a grand plan? Did you think, <laughs> I'm going to start here and then I'm going to get a bit of this and a bit of that? And, you know, because looking at your CV, there is a natural progression. Did you have it all mapped out? I'm laughing because <laughs> anybody who knows me is laughing and going, there was no plan. There was absolutely no plan. I had never actually planned to be in business. When I was growing up, I wanted to be a writer. And then I studied psychology and I thought, well, maybe I'll be a a coach or a counselor. And then I thought maybe I'll be a teacher. And interestingly, all of those things come together in some way now in that the things that I love most about my job either involve teaching people how to be great marketers being a terrific coach to people. And I love to write and I, I write well and I write fast. So so you can still get all of those things, but there was no straight line. So if you try to make sense a little bit of the path, there is kind of an upward progression. And I did ask myself, am I making more every year? But for most of my career, my objective, my very strategic objective was to live in Boston. That's all I wanted and to never move from Boston. I I grew up in Connecticut, but always wanted to move to Boston. And once we made it there, in fact, that's why I went to Harvard. That is a singular reason it was in Boston. So it's always been the personal life that has driven those choices. And some of the most interesting turns come from when you take the unusual path. So I, when I was offered the job to move to London, I said, no, I said, I live in Boston. You know, that's how I define myself. And I went home and I told my husband I'd turned down this job with Allied de Mech Retail, which owns 3,500 pubs in the UK. I said, yeah, I turned it down. You know, it's not in Boston. He said, well, why'd you turn it down? I like pubs. You know, I'm going, well, that's not a good enough reason to move. Then he said, I think the kids are too sheltered. I think we're too sheltered. We should go on this adventure. And, you know, when he plays the kid card, it is almost always a winner. 
So we moved to London and pretty quickly after I started, my boss, Stephen Alexander, amazing guy, but it's never good news when someone calls you in a meeting and you won't, you don't know why. And he started by saying, one of us is going to cry during this meeting and I think it's going to be me, meaning him. I thought, well, that's distressing. He said, I know we fairly meet recently moved you here to, you know, run marketing and strategy and for Allied, but we're selling the company and I'm going to be out of a job and so are you. And I was like, okay. <laughs> and I remember I went home and I told my family and, and my husband said, well, we moved to the UK for our family, go get another job. And I knew one person in all of the UK is a guy I worked for, Peter Philipson, and he had worked for Diageo. He connected me and they offered me not one, but two jobs, which is a little bit of a repeat of the story. One job was marketing director of what was UDV at the time. And the other was president of Burger King in the UK and Ireland. And once again, I thought, where do I think I can be more successful? Took the, the in theory, lesser title, but what I thought was the bigger opportunity with uh, Diageo. I mean, that brings us, well, up to date in terms of where you are right now. But I just want to dwell again on that revelation that you just made, that you were offered one job at Burger King, which on paper would be a dream job for anybody, and particularly at that stage of your career. But you chose, again, perhaps it's a feather in the cap of marketing. You chose a marketing director job over a president of, uh, of a company of that stature, you talk about not having no grand plan. Is it is it just what feels right in your gut as opposed to what looks good on paper? Almost completely by what feels right and what's right for my family. Mm. I'm a strategy person. I could see that the future of Burger King within Diageo was more tenuous than the future of the drinks business. And the other thing that my head said was follow the margin, understand the economics of the business. And there aren't many businesses that have better margins than spirit and brands like Guinness. So there was a head element of it, but at the end of the day, I think you make decisions in your gut, what's right for your family. And I think those decisions really uh, stand you in good stead. Going back to when you left Gillette, you joined uh, a company that I confess I'd never heard of until I started looking at your CV, Holson Burns Group, where you did lots of different things, including managing teams of sales, marketing, design, and finance professionals, which, again, was a relatively early part of your career. It seems on paper, again, like a left turn, not an obvious choice. Um, did you take that job because you wanted to test yourself? Yeah, a couple of reasons. One, again, if we go back to the Boston theme, it was in the Boston area, and there aren't that many consumer products companies there. But the reason I wanted to leave Gillette after what was a really great career was I wanted something far more entrepreneurial where I could shape the company at that stage of my career. And Wholesome Burns is a photo frame and uh, photo album business. They were eventually bought by Newell. We sold the company to Newell, which was a great experience to have in terms of selling a company. And I had become a general manager there, which again, terrific experience. But Having spent what what I think is the first 15 years of my career, and those years are really formative. If you think about it, those years of your career are a lot like growing up, right? It trains you how you are in business. It trains you how to think. It trains you a little bit about what you think is right and not right in terms of culture. And I was really lucky to have worked in not that many companies, but fantastic 
companies. But working for a big multinational like Gillette and a small Bain Capital-backed, venture-backed company were two entirely different experiences. I feel like I developed both halves of my brain. How do you do a lot on an international stage, moving a fairly big system, but being a smaller cog? And then how do you have a bigger grasp, but far fewer resources. And I think those two things make me the business person that I am today. When I'm talking about results, I'm not relating to that as a number on a page or a PowerPoint presentation. I'm relating to it as some of the decisions I had to make as a GM, which was if we didn't figure out, for example, how to make the factory more efficient, we were gonna have to offshore everything and lose an awful lot of jobs. And those things are very real to me. And those things are things that I care about. And working for a smaller company gave me that experience immediately. I can see that. I've never been to Boston, by the way, but you'll give me me a kind of tribute (laughs) to city that makes me want to rush there. I will plan your trip and you will love it. (laughs) Marketing Week Meets, sponsored by Salesforce's intelligent one-to-one customer journeys. Helping you achieve higher revenue, happier customers and lower costs. Moving to Diageo, because you joined almost at the inception of Diageo as a company almost 20 years ago, which is a long time for anybody to work at anywhere in this day and age. I'm just wondering, what is it about Diageo that has kept you interested? The short answer is, because I believe it is the best company in the world. I mean, I really believe that. And, you know, people often say, if you cut sales, you'll bleed Diageo. And I think that's, I think that's true. The longer answer is it was a tremendous opportunity. I mean, to join when the company is two years old, to be able to think about the impact you want to have on the company that we will be as a merger of originally IDV and UD and eventually Seagram's and then a whole host of developing market companies, to have a hand in shaping that was really excited. It's exactly what I set out to do. And when we celebrated our 20th anniversary in December of last year, it was a really emotional moment for me. And we had a big celebration, as you can imagine. And I watched the film of us burying a time capsule that is going to be open on our 100th anniversary, so a long time from now. But in there are some of the bottles of our great brands, some really special things from the archives, and a letter from our CEO, Ivan, to whoever will be CEO then, which was tremendously emotional. And I spent a lot of time reflecting on how far the company has come. I mean, we used to run the company on a spreadsheet way back then. GB was a giant market for the company, you know, and the whole business was US, GB, Spain, Ireland. Now we are a truly global company. Brands like Johnny Walker Black are three times the size and the stock has increased by 300%. We have people all over the world who are just so proud to be identified with this company. And that, I hope that I've had a small part in that. And that feels great. I'm interested in what you were saying about how Diageo came to be from the parts of various different companies. I just wondered, I I suspect it's a very long story, but if you can give me some potted highlights about how Diageo and what your part in it was created a sort of corporate culture that sort of embraced all the various different parts that you that you pulled together from at various different times? Yeah, there were a few things. One, we developed 
pretty early on a corporate purpose and a set of values that were widely bought into. So uh, quite serious. These are our values. Our corporate purpose is celebrate life every day, everywhere. And by that, we don't mean raise a glass. It's fine if you do, but that's a very small part of that purpose. That purpose is really around making a contribution to all of our communities all over the world, to our internal people, to all of our stakeholders, and really being a, a, a force for good in that sense. And we live that purpose. There were a couple other factors which I was really proud to be involved in. One is the Diageo Way of Brand Building is an unbelievably powerful program. We develop it ourselves. Our marketing capability work is all developed internally with a very small team, and we know how to deploy it fast. So we can get a program like that out to 1,300 people in six months. And then with the core program, we go beyond that and train, say, the top 3,000 people in the company so that we're all speaking the same language. And that makes a massive difference. And then our leadership programs, Diageo DLPP, what we call the Diageo Leadership for Performance Program, that too gets deployed quite widely. And those things create common bonds, which makes an enormous difference. I said in my intro uh, that you're a member of the exec committee at Diageo. There's obviously a lot of hand-wringing and a little bit of navel-gazing in marketing about lack of impact and influence and how to create that impact and influence. Tell me first what your role on the exec committee at Diageo is. So my role is very broad. Reporting into me are all of the global brands, planning, our luxury business, innovation, which includes R&D. So there aren't many CMO roles left that really have a lot of the core elements of the business reporting in. On the exec committee, I'd say I'm probably a business person first and a marketer second. I take a, a very broad view and I don't feel necessarily like I'm representing marketing. I am the marketing expert, but we have a number of people who have come up through a marketing background. John Kennedy, our Europe president. My boss, Ivan, was the CMO who hired me. John O'Keefe, who runs Africa, used to work for me. So there are uh, quite a few voices who understand marketing. And Diageo is itself a marketing company. So you don't feel like I need to represent the consumer in some ways. That said, I think marketers who talk a lot about or at worst whine about not having influence in the committee are misguided. Some people might be listening to this and say, yeah, well, she works for a consumer company. She automatically has influence. And that's not true either. What's true is if you speak the language of the business, which is about customers, it is about consumers, but it is also about growth then you start to get credibility. You need to understand what it takes to deliver creative flair. That needs to be specialty. You know, your specialty in some ways, but I don't talk a lot about that. I show that in the work. And I am always thinking about return. What is the return that we're generating in the short, medium, and long-term? And I'm thinking about the fact that marketing is not a goal unto itself. It takes all of us together to really deliver growth for the company. And what that means in terms of my relationship with the other people on the committee, which is terrific. We worked together for a long time, but the presidents wouldn't see me as somebody who stands in opposition to them, but someone who is truly their partner. And I wouldn't be going, oh, they're just out for short-term results. Why don't they think of the long-term health of our brands? We are in it together to drive 
for the maximum growth for Diageo and for our people. As a female leader in your business, do you feel there's a, a sense of responsibility to empower other females in Diageo around you? Uh, yes, absolutely. It, it is a big way in which I define myself. I'm sure we all believe in all kinds of diversity, as I do. I often believe that if you get gender right, all the other buckets fill more naturally. So I think it's a very powerful place to focus. Now, luckily at Diageo, I'm not alone. As a senior leader, our exec is 40% women and our board of directors is 50% women. And that does change the tone. It feels really great. But I think we all, men and women, have a responsibility to be role models for gender equality. So within Diageo, I put a lot of attention to that. I give voice to that. And it is a big part of what I do externally. So when I agreed to become president of the Marketing Society, a lot of the reason was in support of Gemma Greaves, our great new CEO, and really wanting to support her leadership, or being on the board of the Women's Prize for Fiction, which is a tremendous organization. And I'm a very proud member of WACL. So these are the organizations that mean an awful lot to me. I just want to talk about key moments in your career. We spoke probably about 18 months ago about failure what you just delivered with your colleague Mark at Cannes, a presentation about embracing failure. I just wondered if you could point to a failure in your career and what you might have learned from that. Yeah, what Mark and I presented on was our successes and failures around brand purpose and what we think it takes to get that right. But the genesis of the thought for that presentation wasn't necessarily around purpose, which is an overwrought subject. But I was very excited about the idea of taking the stage at Cannes and showing the work that didn't work. Because I believe passionately that you can learn as much from what doesn't work as what does. One of the ways in which Diageo defines themselves is as a learning organization. So people can come to me all the time and say, this didn't work or that didn't work. I'm like, all right, what'd you learn? In terms of my own failures, let me tell a story that is a, a combination of failure and success. So the flip side of one of my really difficult times is the success that I had with a tremendous team of people setting up the innovation function for Diageo. So Diageo actually has, or its previous companies, a lovely history of innovation, but it was typically once a decade, big blockbusters like Bailey's or Bombay Sapphire, which we created, Ciroc. And I was brought on to a project where the task was to lead a team to create a billion pounds of net new revenue within five years. Now, even for Diageo, it's a billion pounds is a lot of money from scratch. So first thought was, oh, maybe I won't be in this role in five years. I don't know if I succeeded or failed. I was terrified. But I did what I always do, which is assemble the right team and really go after that objective. Now, that objective was one of five that were set at the time as part of a, a really bold aspiration that we had set for ourselves as a company. And about a year into the mission, and I use the word mission very specifically, we had a leadership conference, top 100 leaders, and we were rating how much everybody believed we were going to achieve each of the five goals. So we're going to grow our core brands 
the next one, 90%, the next one, 75%. And innovation was the last one. And I sat there and watched that bar not rise. Only 18% of people believed that innovation would be successful in achieving its goal. And literally all eyes swiveled and looked at me, which was uncomfortable. And then it got even worse. Then people came up to offer me their sympathy. And I can't think of anything I'd rather not have than, than people's sympathy. So what do you do in a situation like that? You can get defensive, you can get discouraged. And what the team and I did was we listened hard. We listened really hard. And we realized we had created too much of a bubble around innovation. We were leading a crusade and we weren't having people really share the goal. So we put in place a whole bunch of mechanisms to have that be a shared goal and to have people be really invested in the success of innovation is their success. And I'd love to tell you that was perfect. That went perfectly. But the truth is a year after that, we missed our annual objective for that year by a hundred million pounds. Now that's a pretty big miss. But again, we huddled. I worked with the regional presidents. They owned that failure with me, which was tremendously supportive. I learned in that at the time, we don't have this anymore, and I think it's great that we don't have it, but we had a rating system in performance reviews from below expectations to exceeds expectations. And in that period, I was everything from exceeds to mostly meets. From that, I learned not to define myself by an external rating, but was I on the path that I believed in and that I thought was going to be meaningful? And we learned, we adapted, but we stuck to that mission and we smashed that goal. And innovation is now anywhere in any given year from 12 to 16% of Diageo's total sales and half of our growth, which is exactly what we set, set out to do, a steady stream of reliable revenue that uh, we could depend on. I was sitting here hopeful for a happy ending. We <laughs> it got, was we a got happy there ending. in the end. <laughs> what would you say was your biggest achievement if you could single one thing to date in your career? I think it is that creating the innovation function because it's something that I think is going to go on and on for Diageo. And it's been, gosh, how many years now? 13 years now that we've been able to establish that track record. So I feel pretty certain that will continue. It's about legacy, right? Indeed. An interesting way of looking at things I often find is to reflect on the advice that you might have given to yourself when you were starting out in your career. Thinking back to when, I don't know, when you were at Harvard or before that, what would you tell yourself? I think I would say grab the opportunities and don't be afraid. So uh, although I started by saying I don't have a plan, I could add to that I didn't have a particular ambition. I grew up in pretty humble circumstances. So by the time I became a brand manager, I'd achieved more than I ever thought that I could in terms of career. And But if I look back on it, and if I look at the literature, which says that women are often less optimistic about their ability to do things, I can recognize in myself that although at the time I would have any number of good reasons like 
I remember I turned down one promotion as a GM saying, oh, I'm pregnant. And then another one is like, oh, no, the children are too young. And even moving to London, I think more of that was rooted in fear that I couldn't do it than it was in all of those reasons. And as I've learned to grab the opportunities and embrace them, I think if I had done that earlier, I would have not necessarily been more successful because that's not how I define, you know, my happiness. I think I would have stretched myself sooner and I would have learned more and and that might've been even more fulfilling. Mm. So I would have said that to myself, don't be afraid. Is there anything, any mechanisms that you've learned to adopt to overcome that fear? Sure, I have just experience? Yeah, no, it's not just experience. I think there are specific things you can do, right? So one is to recognize that we all have that voice of doubt in our head. And if you actually stop and question it, like, I'm worried about this, well, what else could happen? You know, and you list all the things that either could happen on the negative side and say, well, is that so bad? And when I look at that, I go, are my husband and kids healthy? And if they are, nothing else matters quite so much. Then you list all the other things that you could believe about this situation. Maybe I'll fail. Maybe I'll be wildly successful. I've actually done a wackle talk on all the things that I was afraid of, 10 things. And the punchline is they all came true. You know, I worried my mom would die before my dad and that happened. I worried that the kids would keep me up at night and I wouldn't be able to transition back to work. That happened. It all happened. And what you realize at the end of it was, and you still found a way. So that's another really good mechanism, but to recognize that we all have these fears and it's one of the reasons I talk about it so much. And it's about looking at your journey and saying, are they getting a little quieter? Are you taking stock of the fact that you have been able to overcome these things? And then there's just plain old ignoring it. So in those early CMO years, that voice of doubt would come in. I would say, I don't have time to listen to you. I have to get on and with this team, get these brands into shape. And that becomes the focus, not the voice in your head. Accelerating a few years when you've finished at Diageo and you've effectively perhaps retired from work, what legacy would you like to leave? What would you like to be remembered for in your professional life? I don't know that I'll ever retire. You know, nobody can quite quite imagine, you know, me me not working, but that really is rooted in my legacy being around the impact on people. And whether that is my family and trying to be the best mom and wife I can, to people in Diageo where I put a tremendous focus on, I try to go into every conversation saying, how do I leave somebody inspired? And thinking about how to become a better leader. And sometimes that's talking about how they're going to deliver a presentation, but other other times that's really about thinking about how are they feeling in this situation and what is going to take them to the next level. Now, that could be words of encouragement. It could be asking the right questions. It could be pretty direct feedback, but it's all in service of them. So my hope is that that people are, are standing around at my funeral, knock on wood, because I'm very superstitious, saying she made a difference to me. It's that simple. I can't imagine a more fitting legacy to leave in life and business than that. Thank you very much, Syl. That was uh, that was fantastic. That's all we have time for today. 
Thank you to my guest, Sil Seller. Thanks, uh, You've been listening to Marketing Week Meets, sponsored by Salesforce and brought to you by Something Else, with me, Russell Parsons, and producer, Laura Hyde. You can subscribe via iTunes and SoundCloud and listen via marketingweek.com, where you'll be able to hear previous episodes with the likes of Professor Byron Sharp, Tom Goodwin, and Amanda McKenzie, OBE. So until next time, goodbye. Marketing Week Meets, sponsored by Salesforce's intelligent one-to-one customer journeys. Helping you achieve higher revenue, happier customers, and lower costs.